Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners are now almost certainly aware, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist, or architect about a material with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I find myself in the Dotkins-based studio of Sebastian Cox. The furniture designer and maker set up his eponymous company in 2010 and quickly developed a reputation for working with British wood in general and coppiced hazel in particular in the process proving in his words that a traditional approach could be radical and that the past can be used to design and make the future. Since then, he has created installations for the likes of Burberry, sold furniture through heels and has even done a one-off commission for the doyen of British design, Sir Terence Conran, which I imagine could be a little bit intimidating. Not only that, but he has recently published a new manifesto that sets out the course for a sustainable future in this country. Sebastian, thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for coming, Grant. That's all right. Was, was, that, was, was that all right? Was yeah. I, that's all accurate? Oh, Great. Good. Good. All fair. Can we start off by talking a bit about the studio? I mean, initially you set up in Lincolnshire, I think I'm right in Correct. saying. But was it important to come to London? Yes. Um, initially, I kind of just wanted to be in London. I just wanted to live in London. And... Um, Actually, I found once I moved here that there was a real, it was very easy to kind of connect with the rest of the industry here. And then subsequently connecting with clients was just that bit easier. And we're finding that actually having a workshop in London is a really good sales tool. So it'd probably be sensible to kind of up sticks and move out to the countryside. We've got about 5,000 square foot of studio mm. space. But actually, people come and visit us and they see the things being made and all of that really counts for a lot so it is worth being here even financially because why this part of town it i mean it is it is a very much an ungentrified part of london mm -hmm. one of the few i would suggest yeah. and you have the thames barrier across the way the big tate and lyle sugar uh, factory over the water yep. what was it about this part of town well i mean i was coming from outside of london i didn't have any connections here didn't know anybody so i was just looking on google for workspaces and um, i ended up in southeast london for the workshop and then subsequently found a house nearby. So it was very much led by the availability of space. But then I actually really fell in love with the area. I actually really like it around here. Um, as you say, it um, can be edgy in places, but you can still get a decent coffee and a nice meal. So yeah, it's largely, you know, there are very few places that have 5,000 square foot mm. studio spaces. Mm. I mean, can we talk a bit about the setup? Because it's, like it's like a workshop in three parts, right? Yeah. So what have you got here? So we're, we're currently set in the studio, which is um, a space which has more finished product in than anything that's being made. Um, and this is where uh, some of our design team sit. So we've got Camilla, Francesca and Isaac. Tapping here. assiduously away Ta on the Tapping quietly on Trying to keyboards. ignore us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so this is where we design things. And uh, obviously this is where we have meetings and, and speak to clients and things like that. And then we have uh, the bench shop, which is where we assemble things and kind of make things, put things together. And um, we, we have six benches in there. And then we have the mill, which is our sort of machine shop, our sort of processing space where we um, bring wood in and uh, kind of, yeah, turn it into a makeable product. Was it important you had your own mill? I mean, it's quite, an indul what, indulgence is the wrong word, but it, I mean, it's quite a, an undertaking, should we say, in, in this Indulgence would probably be fair, but um, actually, so, well, my business coach would call it vertically integrated. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so actually, I think that is, I mean, that was really the starting point of the whole business was the idea of looking at coppiced wood. And if you're just taking a piece of wood out of a woodland, you need to understand how to process it. 
And so that idea of actually taking trees and processing them and ending up with tables is completely inherent to the business. So yes, you could say it was an indulgence, but actually I would say that it's kind of the thing that really underpins what we do, mm. why we do it. It gives us a connection to the woodlands, to landscape. It gives us a connection um, to our customers on a deeper level. So it, it's kind of important. And the other thing is that, you know, 90% of the wood in this country is imported. So you kind of have to also make your own ways of working because we're actually working outside of the norm. You know, a lot of woodwork, even if it's solid wood, it's imported. And, you know, most furniture, much of furniture that's out there is, is veneered and just, uh, you know, MDF with a bit of veneer on the top. So we're kind of an oddity anyway. So we've kind of had to work out our own ways of doing things. And, you know, having that processing side really helps us understand that. Can we talk about this um, treaties, I guess, you've produced? Maybe we should call it a manifesto mm. on the way we use land to consume things. I think you've entitled it Modern Life from Wilder Land. Um, yeah. It's quite a piece of work. Yeah, yeah, it is. It ended up being that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because you're a furniture designer, but you've written, I mean, I don't know how many words it is, but it must be 15,000 or so. Yeah. So why did you decide to do it? Well, we're a furniture business, but there's a kind of bigger ambition with the business. And so I've always been interested in the bigger picture. Um, and I've been interested in, you know, questions of sustainability, the ethics of kind of, you know, occupying this space on this earth at this time, you know, what, how should we operate, uh, etc. And I think one of the biggest ethical questions that we should be asking ourselves is how we use our land, because uh, land offers opportunities to sequester carbon and tackle issues like climate change. Um, it feeds us, uh, and increasingly it can produce uh, materials, um, you know, in place of just digging up fossil fuels. And of course, fuel increasingly. So, you know, we could replace all fossil fuels by just growing biomass, but then we'd have no room for food. So we're trying to solve one problem and we create another. And the thing that's often talked about as being, you know, the, the, the sort of over, over uh, arching problem of the age is that we have, you know, approaching 10 billion people on the planet. And it's not the people per se that's the problem, it's the land they need. So it's actually how do we allocate that availability of land for us to allow us to live, but also actually remembering that wildlife and natural systems need that land too. So it was kind of an, an, um, an examination of um, all of those things, but focused on Britain. I'm, I'm not quite mm. going to tackle the global land <laughs> situation, but certainly um, Britain's a land that I feel familiar with growing up in the countryside. And I thought uh, it would be interesting to explore how we could better use it. Do you have a sense of what you want to achieve with it? Um, Really, for, for me, it's been a kind of personal, personal exploration, really, to just kind of better understand it myself. And then that will inform works that we produce, which will be kind of commenting on and around it um, over the coming years. I, you know, my, the first five years of my business were completely underpinned by my dissertation in my MA, which was called Traditional as Radical. Um, and that really helped me frame the business in the early days. And I guess I realized it was time for another manifesto. So you're you know? reframing. We, well, yeah, we're kind, of, we're kind of broadening our focus, actually. You know, I, we, you know we, we, we really care about biodiversity and we talk about that a lot in our sort of social media and things like that. And we're 
forever talking about the, the good that our furniture does within the woodlands that we harvest the wood from. And yet the places where biodiversity is suffering most in Britain is in our farmlands, which is three quarters of our landscape. So I sort of was talking to Brogan about it and this idea of sort of moving out of the woods and into the fields in terms of our, you know, what we're commenting on and what we're thinking mm. about was a process that um, we needed to do with some rigorous research. So you just mentioned Brogan is your wife. Brogan is my wife and business partner. Yeah. And... Um, and absolutely fundamental to all the decisions that we make. So it was very much about, yeah, that kind of exploration, sort of thinking, well, yeah, you know, biodiversity is suffering most in fields. How do we frame our thinking around what we would like to say on that? How do we comment on that with some degree of knowledge and expertise? Because it raises some fascinating points. You don't reject globalisation, for instance. Um, but then again, everything in the document is about being self-reliant. Yes, that's, yeah, I... I, I I sort of struggled to make it not kind of, particularly in a post-Brexit, you know, uh, environment. I tried to make it not too kind of uh, flag-waving. and But, you know, that's been our business from the start. It's been about British wood, but not for patriotic, nationalistic reasons. It's just because it's about looking at what we have here, taking responsibility for our own garden. And then, um, and it is a garden. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then kind of that can then be applied to the rest of the world. I think Britain's a really interesting landscape to look at because it's kind of been messed around with so much. We've long forgotten the deep damage we did or our ancestors did in terms of deforesting it to plow it all, you know, um, and we are in the sort of top quartile of most densely populated countries in the world. So if we can make it work here, then it could be an example for thinking globally. Because, I mean, this is the, the key to it, isn't it? Fundamentally, what you're saying is that we need more land devoted to forests mm -hmm. and less to farming or to, to producing food? Yes. So the main starting point of the manifesto is that we need to reduce the land that's dedicated to the production of meat, which is quite you know an interesting and timely thing. And that actually was provoked by a lot of conversations around veganism and vegetarianism. And but but you, you still admit that people should, or not should, but can. In your world, yeah. they are still eating meat, just less, right? Absolutely. So this is all part of the learning process for me was the initial thing was like, well, let's get rid of meat. Uh, and then I was sort of exploring, why wouldn't you get rid of meat? And the first answer to that is nutrition. We need to have a nutrient cycle. And animals are an excellent way at extracting calories from land um, that is recovering between crops. So you can't just grow wheat, 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 wheat in a, in, in a field uh, without artificial fertilizers. And we were trying to do this whole thing organically and in a way that works with nature. So you have resting land. And if you're really worried about calories per hectare, some dairy, a bit of veal, maybe maybe some lamb from the from the recovering. Well, land. we need to talk about sheep. Well, yeah, <laughs> sheep. yeah, yeah. You don't want sheep. We, well, we have too many sheep. What what is it? What's wrong what with about sheep? sheep? Okay, so t I mean, typically, an area that's kind of prime for conversion back to forest, and I say back to forest because it was once forested, yeah. is our uplands, which are largely um, grazed and overgrazed by a non-native animal which is a sheep. It you know, came with the Romans. Came with the Romans from Mesopotamia. <laughs> and uh, Isabella Tree in her brilliant book, Wilding, describes the, the mouthpiece of the sheep being very different to the mouthpieces of the herbivores that evolved here. So a lot of our native flora haven't actually evolved to be sort of clipped neatly uh, in the way that a sheep does. So we've got loads of massive areas of our landscape which are covered in this animal, which is non-native, which suppresses any chance of any forest ever recovering. 
And actually, we export a, more than 50% of the sheep that we produce here, so they're not even serving our own native needs. And they are very inefficient in usage of land in our uplands. So actually, that's kind of the first thing where I would say, let's remove the sheep, let's replace them with a lower density cattle and let forests succeed. Because actually, you know, cows belong in woodland, not in fields, basically. And um, so that's a sort of, it's a kind of a replacement of the right animal in the right place and fewer of them. So what about wool? Because in, in your world, we're going to be wearing hemp and flax. Yes. So there would be a preference in my proposal for moving to uh, bast-based fibre. So yeah, exactly. Hemp, flax, which per hectare of land produce fibre much more efficiently. Um, and yeah, I, I don't really leave much room for wool, unfortunately, is one of the things that you know, when you're looking at the hectares of land that we've got and how we're going to divide it up, you do have to be quite brutal. And we've had, you know, I sound, I sound like a conservative, <laughs> conservative chancellor or something, but we have had to make some tough decisions. And, and unfortunately, wool and sheep have been one of the things that have gone. We do include sheep in our temporary pasture. So, right. so like when a field is recovering between crops, that is a time where you can graze it with some sheep. But actually, I've also expressed a preference for dairy there um, because that's a field that's going to be planted with herbal lays and then so, so a mixed planted grassland, you know, effectively like a meadow. And then that would then be ploughed a few years later um, and turned back into arable. I mean, we're looking at an environment that's going to be far wilder. We would have boars running around, Wild boars. for instance. Yep, yep. Yes, there's a very interesting sort of conflict um, in the idea because Britain is such a cultured landscape, you know. Um, I went to a really excellent conference on rewilding last January and um, there was a sheep farmer there who was sort of defending his uh, culture, you know, effectively saying that, uh, you know, sheep farming in upland Wales is the kind of, um, you know, it's the mainstay of the Welsh language, you know, in, in, in sort of actual active use. So there are all these sort of conflicting issues uh, in terms of the way that we have cultivated and cultured our whole landscape. But I think we've over gardened, you know, I think we've overdone it. You know, it's, it's evident that that's, that's the case. You know, we are, we are too tidy. We are too, um, too driven by the idea of neatness. Well, that's, yeah, it's interesting because there's a, there's a quote that I liked in the, in the document that says the idea of a tidy countryside is damaging. Yeah. And does that translate into your work as well? I mean, some of it has a, it isn't all perfect. Is yeah, it? absolutely. Uh, it does. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, the, the knot in this table is something which would be um, not considered prime material, but that's kind of where we've, you know, trees contain knots. And that's kind of what we say to our customers and, and we invite our customers to accept that. And, you know, that might limit our customer pool, but so be it. We have plenty of people who get that, understand that, appreciate that and buy it from us. And, you know, I think when we're talking about the natural world, Actually, it's only an aesthetic preference to have neatly mown verges or harshly clipped hedges. All of those things are, they're, they're literally only visual. There isn't really any reason, all right, maybe you could say driver safety on some corner. But, you know, I think it, we just need to re-educate ourselves about how things once did look um, and kind of, yeah, reset and reframe that. I think it's really important. And you're very much in favour of the population eating less, not going to the gym, which I thought was quite intriguing. Oh, yeah. 
uh, and instead spending our downtime foraging. Yeah, well, yeah, that would be a better use of calories. I mean, I once had a friend who would eat kind of eight peanut butter sandwiches and then just go to the gym and burn it off. Yeah. And uh, when I started thinking about, you know, so part of the model that we've done is to look at areas of land, what they're used for, what that particular crop would yield, and then the number of calories that you can get from the national uh, ability to grow that, you know, so if we've got 500 tonnes of potatoes, how many calories does that get and therefore how many people does that feed? And when you're looking at it down to the calorie, you really start to explore these ideas of waste. And one of the big areas, apart from reducing the area of land for permanent pasture, one of the big areas of reduction is in our food waste. So I propose that we need to cut food waste. We, we waste about a third of the food uh, in, in Europe that we, that we grow. Um, so yeah, reducing waste and also, yeah, reducing our own waste of you know burning it off mm. i mean you know i i i i um i'm i, I hate gyms just you know <laughs> yeah, i'm I all kinda, for not yeah, going to the gym uh, me too but i do love a hockey pitch you know <laughs> yeah. or or you know and i have no problem with uh you know a cricket match or whatever some uh superfluous you're not burning expenditure. many calories playing cricket. no well yeah, true <laughs> but um you know I, d I don't i don't and this isn't um a, a, a campaign against activity but um it's you know let's think hard about mm. that as a type of waste as well. But cities come into your, your document too, mm. don't they? I mean, you talk about the need to grow cities in food and we should all have chickens in the back garden. Yeah, well, I had, I, when I was a student in Lincoln, I had chickens in my garden in Lincoln, um, in an what was the outside toilet, I had two chickens and I used to convert all of my food waste into eggs. And that, when you're a student, that's very welcome because you know, it's cheap. So yeah, I mean, cities are great because obviously they're very efficient users of land. You get lots of people um, occupying a small space um, and there's a surprising amount of forage in cities I absolutely love finding food near to my house um, in the local park and that sort of thing and we can actually produce quite a lot within our cities anyway so yeah that's uh, I'm, I'm all for that. What's the role of the designer in all this I mean you talk about having to take a kind of design version of the Hippocratic Oath which I thought was kind of fascinating. Yes so I suppose I kind of had, I kind of thought that, you know, it, it actually designing or making anything is quite a big responsibility, actually. There's quite a lot, you know, I believe that knowing what we know about the damage we're doing to the planet, if you design or make anything, that is a political act and a political statement. And I don't take it lightly at all. And I, yeah, I really do believe that you should have to you know, swear to never make landfill or something. I don't quite know what not use it would MDF. be. Maybe not use MDF. <laughs> um, but no, I think, I think it should be taken really seriously. And, um, you know, everything that's in a landfill site has been designed by someone, you know, who maybe went through a design college or maybe not. Maybe that's why it's in landfill. I don't know. But, you know, I, I think this stuff is really serious. Mm. So, I mean, as we've alluded to, I'm going to shift the conversation on a little bit, but mm. as we've alluded to, you know, you've been an advocate for British wood in your, in your, your furniture. Um, where did this interest in timber come from in the first place? Um, well, I had quite a rural upbringing. I grew up in Kent. And um, my dad and mum set up a business around the time I was born, restoring medieval buildings. So my very earliest memories were of kind of carpenters shaving scarf joints in green oak and that kind of smell of green oak takes me back to being sort of three or four. Um, so I was always kind of fascinated in the material. And then I wanted to do something practical. I didn't really, I went to a grammar school, 
state school and they were trying to really push everybody into Oxbridge. Um, and if you didn't really want to get into Oxbridge, they didn't really mind mm. about you. Mm. So I, t I sort of announced that I wanted to join the army or be a plumber um, to kind of like, you know, shrug off the idea that I needed to do A-levels. And then I think it was my grandmother who said, she was quite switched on about these things and really helpful. And she said, there's a course that you can do where it's 50% designing, 50% making. And I thought, oh, that could be quite good. And so it was the practical element that really drew me into it. And then I remember going up to Lincoln and on day one was, you know. Why Lincoln? Uh, it was Lincoln or High Wycombe for, right. for the course, for the, okay. for the making course. And Lincoln looked like a nicer city and a nice cathedral, stuff like that. And um, I remember cutting into a piece of, I think it was beach, cutting a dovetail. And I just thought I could, I could do this forever. It was just kind of the sort of romance of that material and you know the fact that I was I had an aptitude for it which I you know discovered very early on the course and then I kind of realized that actually there were all these amazing environmental implications of using that material I think it's fairly obvious that it's you know biodegradable and can be grown most places but then when I started learning about you know the biodiversity within woodlands and how actually using and extracting wood can promote that biodiversity and then sort of later on kind of learning about carbon capture and how wood can become silos for carbon. I sort of then really found that, you know, I was working with a material that had kind of really interesting contemporary relevance as well as a really interesting tradition. You made your reputation uh, with the coppiced hazel mm. initially. Um, can we talk for the listeners who might not be experts, what coppicing is what it involves yeah and why it's a, a good thing so coppicing is a traditional method of woodland management where trees are effectively pruned at ground level so you're cutting trees on short cycles of seven to 15 years and that is how we obtained wood for our everyday objects for the last thousand years or more reason being if you need to make a basket it is much easier to cut something that's the diameter of your thumb or two inches than it is to fell a whacking great oak tree, saw it into planks, cut it into thin strips and then weave the basket, which is what we would do today. You know, that's, that's kind of what, if we needed to make a basket, that's the way we'd go about it. But of course, the sheer force and energy and manpower to handle that tree, large tree, is much greater than just going in and cutting something with a bill hook and then weaving it. So it became part of the way that we made everyday objects for a long time. And there was this amazing sort of, there still is an amazing um, sort of associated culture within, of different crafts and different skills and different tools that are associated with coppicing. So it's this sort of very interesting part of our culture, which is largely forgotten because in the sort of up to the 50s, uh, sort of 20s to the 50s with the sort of democratization of plastic, a lot of our everyday objects were then not made from that material. And a lot of that type of woodland fell into poor management uh, and also uh, unexpectedly I think also biodiversity within those places dropped as well so there's a really interesting and telling statistic which is that since the second world war woodland cover in the UK has increased so we now have more hectares of woodland but the biodiversity in our forests has decreased so that tells you that although we've got more woodland it's less biodiverse and we're mm. not using it right so we're not managing it properly? Because we're not managing it, because mm. we're not using it, the biodiversity is suffering. I mean, when you started, did you think you could make 
uh, a career that involved that involved a company. You know, you've got fourteen people working for you here. Mm. Was that part? Was there a plan? No, no, <laughs> there wasn't. I I think I wanted to have a business. Both my parents self-employed, uh, and I didn't think I was going to be too employable working for other people. I Why is that? I'm quite bossy. I'm quite um, single-minded. I I really like working with people and collaborating, but I do I do have my own ways of doing things, and um, I wouldn't get to write bloody manifestos if I was working for other people, would I? <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I, I really wanted to make that work, but I didn't know whether that would be with a team or whether that'd just be me mm. on my own. Um, and I suppose I was sort of drawn down this route of heading towards more production stuff by the Hazel because what I found was a material that was available everywhere and was used by few people. And I thought, this is what's interesting about the idea is that it's a solution that's scalable. And that's always when solutions become exciting when you're looking at a contemporary problem is it's not just like a one-off thing that sort of tells a story or asks a difficult question. Where actually it's an idea that's scalable, then that becomes really exciting. So, so it was never, in other words, it was never your intention to be a kind of lone craftsman sitting in a studio. Probably not. If I, I probably would be a product designer working with other manufacturers to manufacture the hazel or something like that. Um, if we weren't doing it ourselves, because it was a, it, it lent itself to a design products kind of solution. Um, so yeah. That, that's kind of how I ended up doing that. So as the business has grown, you've worked with an array of clients from Burberry and selling pieces from, for heels, as mm -hmm. we've discussed in the intro, mm -hmm. made.com. Um, you also created the desk for Sir mm -hmm. Terence Conran for the wish list, which yeah. I think was at the V&A yeah. a couple of years ago. Um, what was he like as a client? He was great, yeah. Um, extremely intimidating. He wasn't intimidating, but the idea mm. of Terence was intimidating. Um, Particularly, you know, I mean, if I was a chef and Terence Conran wanted a meal, that's one thing. But like, well, actually, no, even not that. He's kind of a foodie, isn't he? No, he's so, not bad at food. Yeah. He does, he does <laughs> yeah. you know, the restaurant revolution was yeah. at least was in at part least, down yeah, to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, all right, different example. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, it was the idea of actually designing a piece of furniture for him. Um, and when I sat down for the first meeting with him, he had a pretty clear idea of what he wanted. But um, actually, I had a better idea. And... <laughs> I thought, and uh, so, so <laughs> kind of delicately putting that. Because if you think you're strong-willed, do you want to check that you out? you want to check that out? Yeah. So, so within the desk, I hope Terence won't mind me saying this, but within the original design of the desk, which is sort of um, the idea was that he could shut himself away and, and work privately and quietly. And he had this idea that he'd have these two towers of bookcases with a, a, a nickel-plated rail and a cotton curtain. And um, I thought that would look a little bit medical. So... I came up with the idea of having these woven screens and I'd soak the oak in his river and all this sort of stuff. And he loved it, which was great. But the idea of approaching him to suggest an improvement on his design was terrifying. I had to really steel myself. And Sean from Benchmark was very supportive in, uh, you know, telling me to go and tell him. So I did it. And it was more of a thing that I wanted to make as a result of doing that. And of course, as we've already mentioned, you were joined by Broger and your wife in 2017 at the company full time. Uh, what difference did that make? Massive difference. So, uh, well, Brogan and I uh, met when I first moved to London. So when the, first, when the business kind of first shifted down here, 
uh, Brogan and I started dating and inevitably, immediately, she had some pretty strong opinions on what I was doing wrong and all this sort of stuff. So Brogan's training and background is in um, marketing and fashion and brand management and that sort of world. So she would sort of look at my inbox and say, why haven't you applied to that journalist from Elle Decoration? And I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm busy making stuff. I haven't got time for that. And uh, so inevitably, she really helped from the off. But then joining full time was uh, just kind of the obvious thing to do. You know, it was it was she, she had so many ideas of how to improve it and how to make it better and um, had completely earned my trust in the sense that you know, she had expertise in that and uh, I could see that it was always going to be better with her than without her. So She's designing furniture now. She's designing furniture now and there's literally one being wrapped and sold uh, as we speak, Camilla's wrapping it up. Those pieces sell at the moment better than anything I've designed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's got a sting, isn't it? No, it's great. It's really good. It's really good. But the, the colour, because... I seem to recall, I can't remember where I read this, that you were disapproving of Yeah, of I was colour. scared of it. It wasn't disapproving, I was scared of it. Oh, I suppose I, I was a little bit disapproving. So I sort of thought that the idea that you have colour trends and we make everything the same colour and then that goes out of trend and then that furniture is now not required, obviously is a problem. And so I, was, I thought it was very easy when I was sort of studying, doing my MA, trying to work everything out. I just put that in a box and kind of say, well, colour's bad because, you know, it can be short-termist and we'll leave that. Um, but Brogan has an amazing, she's, she's a brilliant, you know, she's a good painter and she's kind of brilliantly artistic and um, has a kind of better understanding of that. So this won't go out of fashion? This, well, these are primary colours, you know, prime colours. So maybe not. And... Um, I think there was a certain confidence that comes with, with using them um, that I just didn't have, basically. Mm. I didn't know how I would possibly pick a colour. For me, everything's beige and brown. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because timber is not the only material that you work in. Mm -hmm. uh, you've also been experimenting with mycelium, mm -hmm. uh, which is mushroom-based. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? So going back to my MA again, um, when I was looking for uses for coppice wood, one of the ideas that I wanted to explore was effectively creating a kind of particle board uh, from coppice wood that, you know, wasn't as malign as MDF. So you've got lots of small fibre. How do we chip it up and then produce something that uses loads of it? Um, and my tutor said, you're doing an MA, not an MSC, Seb. You know, stop chipping wood up and go and design some furniture. So I did that. Probably really good advice. And then... Um, some years later, I, yeah, so probably 2015, 2016, there was a, two things that happened in a week. There was a brilliant V&A Friday Late, which was called Growing the Future or something like that. And it was, a, it was an excellent uh, show late at night at the V&A where they had, you know, cheese grown from human sweat and um, xylenum, which is the cellulose byproduct of kombucha tea made into lights. And it was quite eye-opening in terms of this idea that instead of making things, we could grow things, you know, we can biofacture, kind of the growing of objects was just, to me, incredible. And there was a, an expert there basically saying, you know, in theory, you could grow an iPhone if you had the right bacteria or whatever it is producing algae, producing a composite in the right place, we could, in, in theory, grow a circuit board. So I was kind of, my mind was absolutely blown by that. And at the same time, on the same week, I was cutting hazel in the wood and I found two pieces of hazel that were 
fused together uh, as I felled this tree. They were kind of two branches and they were stuck together. Um, and I was like, my God, what is that? Is that the glue that I've been looking for for my MDF for all these years? And turns out it was a fungus. So I got in touch with the British Mycological Society and they put me in touch with um, Ninella, who, who was my sort of collaborator on the project, who's a design researcher. At the time, she was doing a PhD at Kingston. Ninella? Ninella Ivanova. Okay. And um, she's become a good friend, actually, and we've you know, been working on it ever since. Um, so it was sort of a quest to find the use for the wood. And what was fantastic about the whole project was that the least useful wood, the least, use, the least useful timber type in our wood is goat willow, which has no structural integrity at all. And it's highly perishable, so it rots really quickly. And that makes it excellent for mycelium and wood composite because the mycelium can begin to get its my, you know, it strands into the wood as, as quickly as possible. So you actually get a really fast growth with those perishable woods. And that was, again, really exciting because we can now create a use for pretty much everything that we're cutting from our woodland. So you've kind of been developing products with this as mm -hmm. light shades, yep. which have this know, curious aesthetic, it's kind of vaguely alien uh, totally aesthetic, alien. Yeah. kind of fascinatingly kind of tactile, sort of beautiful, but sort of repulsive at the same time. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. was this something that you're, you developed on purpose, I wonder? Um, well, we didn't really know what it was going to look like, to be honest. One of the things, so the, accepting that our future involves some degree of biofacture, you know, at the moment, I believe IKEA are looking into it as a packaging option which is great. And it's been talked about for packaging for a long mm. time. And that's fantastic. So accepting that, we thought it'd be really interesting to see our kind of role in this conversation about the future as trying to, in some ways, kind of domesticate it, in some ways, challenge audiences. You know, we were pairing it with a very familiar material, which is wood. So there's the, you know, the most familiar material and then the kind of the most alien material into, in one object. So we didn't really know what it looked like, but we sort of had the idea that we wanted to challenge people, but also have points about the designs that had a degree of familiarity. Um, yeah, I mean, we're working with a bracket fungus, so it kind of has this two-tone color. So it has these suede brown bits, and then it has this very white kind of underbelly. And um, that kind of gives it a very interesting, you know, textural effect. And everyone is different as well. So the degree to which it goes brown during the growing process is, um, you know, we don't yet understand the process enough to control that. And I quite like that. You know, mm. I quite like that they're, you know, when we're growing the lights, it's kind of out of our hands. And that's quite fun, letting go. I mean, it's quite interesting when you do research on you, William Morris's name comes up all the time. He's obviously here. I mean, he went out of fashion, William Morris, for did he? many years. Yes, I think he it did. Is. Um, but he's obviously a hero of yours. <laughs> yeah, he is, yeah. The criticism of Morris uh, is that, you know, although he was a socialist and fine writer, uh, he could only make products that wealthy people could afford. Um, is it important that your pieces are accessible? And how accessible are your pieces? Yeah, well, this is the big one, Grant. This is the big one. I asked the big one. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking we must be nearing the end. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, uh, 
accessibility is really, really important. Um, but that's the, the difficulty of craft is that you're, making, you're slowing things down. And when you slow things down, they get more expensive. Um, so you can buy into everything we do for 28 quid for candlestick. And then our prices go up to 25 grand plus for you know, high-end commissions and bespoke things and things like that. So we have tried to have ranges that, so yeah, so we have a range called Underwood, which is like a, our entry level range. And we're, you know, we've recently um, added another range, which sort of sits in that kind of area where our staff could afford the furniture they're making. That was kind of something which not even Morris could get to. Mm. Well, um, Morris definitely, Mo Morris get definitely to. couldn't get to it. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that's something which I thought would be a really nice one to try and tackle, I, I, you know, and of course that still doesn't cater to every demographic of society, but if the people that are making it can afford to buy it, that seems right. So, you know, I mean, I can't, can't afford most of my own furniture. You know, that's kind of a weird thing that you have to face when you're making, you know, a career making furniture. Um, so that was quite, yeah, quite a, um, an important collection. It's called Pendine, and um, it's kind of simple. We're sat at a Pendine dining table, very simple, simple as you can, with um, ash, which is one of our least expensive materials. Um, and we're also doing something at the moment where we're um, kind of, you know, jumping in with DFS and all of that uh, to effectively offer part payments for the furniture. So one of the things that my age group, struggles with is actually having a lump of capital to spend, you know, a thousand quid on a dining table is a lot of money. But if you could pay for that dining table in three parts at 300 quid a go, then that becomes more accessible further. I mean, it's not bringing the price down, but it's just breaking down the barriers to purchase. So that's something that we're implementing. Uh, which through I, your website? Yeah, or? through our website, right, which is quite unusual for craft, you know, and yeah. I, I think that's quite, it could be a really big opportunity for craft generally is if we start all, you know, looking at what the big sellers are doing and kind of actually saying, well, why, what, what are the problems with that? Uh, you know, there's this idea that, you know, obviously the world of fast fashion likes a bit of finance in that there are problems you, with that. But the reason, the reason why large companies can do it is because they, they, there's economies of scale, right? Mm. I mean, you're a small business. Can you afford to wait for payment for well, objects that people What's buy? brilliant about this facility is that we don't have to wait for payment. So as soon as the order is placed, we receive the money and then a finance company takes the financial risk. So, so the, and, the, and there's, there's a percentage, I think like, I think it's like 10%, 9%. So, you know, there is a cost yeah. and we will happily split that with the customer um, to make a sale that we otherwise would never have made. Um, and I, I think it could be massive if, if craft businesses started taking this on board because you know, a lot of things these days are paid for by subscription or monthly and um, craft needs to catch up. Mm. Um, and we need to do everything we can to bring those barriers down. To your point about scalability, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and I think people are beginning to realizing with the internet, is that obviously if you're buying from a retailer or a big, you know, supermarket, whatever it is, you are buying through lots and lots of middlemen and they are all taking their margin. If you buy direct from the producer, actually getting much better value and I think this is something which people are uh, becoming more aware of so this pending table if it was sold through a shop could be two and a half grand but you're buying it direct from us and so it's a thousand quid mm. and I think that's something which uh, could be another opportunity for craft if craft was brave enough to talk about that a bit more what forum would craft 
talk about that in, I wonder? Um, brilliant podcasts like Material Matters okay. and, well, and other, um, you know, such uh, you know, outlets. I, 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 there's, there's lots of opportunities for crafts to talk about things, you know, exhibitions and, you know, um, panel discussions that are hosted around these subjects. I, I do think that the craft world needs to talk to each other a bit more. Um, I feel, you know, Brogan and I talk about starting the Craft Workers Union or something, you know, kind of, I don't think there's enough conversing apart from... There is a craft council. There is a crafts council, there absolutely is, but, but that is a uh, sort of third party body. I'm thinking about some sort of a, literally a union, mm. like a, mm. Brogan's going to kill me for bringing <laughs> this up. Um, but, you know, as something that's self-organised, um, where we can share these ideas and um, maybe build the confidence to be a bit braver with our decisions. It's fascinating. So this notion of you describing yourself as a craft business, I think, is, is intriguing because you have, as we've said before, you've got 14 people here. Mm. Presumably that brings different pressures. You've got to HR and yeah. this kind of thing. Yeah, it does. But um, they're worth it because I see the opportunities to tackle issues. Uh, you get taken more seriously you know, if you've got people and you, you're, you're a more able organization and you you know you can work with different clients and collaborators and it frees up time to think about the bigger picture you know if you're if you are hand-to-mouth one-person band um it is very difficult to make time to even do speculative work let alone you know really kind of strategize and all of those things do you have, still have time to make yes so i so the recent pieces that I've just made for a show at Sarah Myerskoff's gallery called Crop, uh, I obviously made all myself. And that's a really important part of working with people like Sarah is actually it can free up my time. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a commercial reason to free up my time, which is really important. So that's quite interesting. So that kind of gallery work allows you to do speculative because it's kind of breadbasket. Yeah, polemical breadbasket. Yeah, a polemical yeah. breadbasket. <laughs> what is it? just for the listeners? Let's describe what a polemical oh, breadbasket. So might like. yeah, so so they're kind of. They're, I mean, they're sculptural pieces. They're they're the equivalent of a you know beautifully turned bowl, um, but they're thatched. You know, it's not it's not for um, it's it's function comes second in these pieces, yeah. which has been quite you know a scary process. And I had to channel my mind back to my collaboration with Laura Ellen Bacon a few years ago um, to uh, you know work up the courage to do something which doesn't have a hundred percent function you can't hide behind function here um, but they are trying to kind of convey um the a, a, a theme in the manifesto which is this idea of having wilder crops and wheat is the big crop that needs you know looking at 2.8 million hectares of it here and uh, most of it is completely hostile to any kind of wildlife so and, and actually devoid of nutrients, you know, the fact that we fortify wheat is the most crazy thing. There's this nutritious, amazing seed that comes from a grass, which we've bred so badly that we now have to actually add the nutrients back in before we can legally feed it to people. I mean, that's something that really needs looking at uh, in a big way. So um, I started with something which would be tabletop conversational and based around bread. So they are literally about two to three foot long. Um, they're about as wide as the uh, train tracks that you get in an intense field of wheat, the bits where the tractors drive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, they will hold some bread. 
but <laughs> they mostly facilitate. Presumably not sliced. Yeah, no, no, no mighty white, but they <laughs> will hopefully facilitate some conversation. Because that has been something you've been experimenting with for a while as well. Yeah, I've been really interested in, um, well, I spend a lot of time at the Weald and Downland Open Air Museum, which is an amazing uh, living medieval museum in Sussex. And so pretty much everything they do there fascinates me. And inevitably, a lot of the roofs are thatched. And every time I go there, Brogan and I are oh, wow, look at that. I've got to do something with thatch. Um, so actually, yeah, I started working with thatch kind of speculatively. Um, and then sort of realized that there, you know, there wasn't really much meaning and then sort of put it up on a shelf. And then when I wrote the manifesto, I was kind of realized that there was a piece in there somewhere about this idea of actually the thatch relating to the wheat itself. Because the first, when you want to work with thatch, you think, oh, I'm just going to get some wheat from that farmer. But no, it all gets smashed up in a combine. So even to get hold of thatching straw is quite difficult. Someone has to specifically grow thatching straw these days. There is no usable byproduct of our current wheat industry, apart from for animal bedding and things like that. So yeah, so it's quite a, yeah, quite an interesting material and you know, crop to look at. So you have a, a business, you have a new baby, you have Willow the dog. Yeah. Do you still have time for uh, Northern Soul DJing? Um, yes, once or twice a year. I just did a wedding actually in September at a friend's house, a friend's, um, a friend's uh, wedding on a nature reserve, which was really fun actually. And actually I did a large part of that DJ set with Sorrel, my daughter, strapped to my chest on a, in a sling. Um, but no, gone are the days where my main income was DJing and my hobby was furniture making. It's now the other way around. If you don't mind me saying, this is quite a fascinating mix, which is there's, there's this kind of traditional, slightly conservative cricket loving side to you. And then this, there was obviously this clubbing, DJing mm. thing going on as well. Yeah, although I was still dressed a bit like William Morris behind the <laughs> deck. So, you know, still had a pipe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose, yeah. And I, I'm really into classic cars and petrol and those things. Um, I think the thing that, uh, maybe brings them all together is this idea that you know they're all vaguely understandable digestible things you know like a, a classic car you lift the bonnet and you can repair it and understand it you get your head around it um and i suppose you know i think that's the same for a lot of the music that i love it would have that kind of a kind of a tangibility about the music so yeah like northern soul and that kind of stuff so yeah it's uh, uh, well yeah uh, broad interests Good interests. Very good. Sebastian, we have to leave it there. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. Cheers, Grant. Thank you. It's really fun. And to learn more about Sebastian's work, go to sebastiancox.co.uk. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.